Good morning. I'm just making some microphone adjustments. Please forgive us. Trying to be a full service church this morning and give you some practical tips for life to help you get through this thing we call life and understand what's next for us. And you'd be amazed at how practical the Bible is. We're going to talk about weight loss today. Yay. It'd be better suited to have this message in January, right? When we're all thinking about it. But the reality is COVID's done a number to us, hasn't it? We uh, stressed out a little bit over the last year. We reached for the things that brought us some comfort, some sense of control. I had to up my shirt sizes in the last few months. Not happy about that. So what does the Bible have to say about weight loss? No, it's not really about weight loss. It's a metaphor. And uh, you know what a metaphor is. Place to keep the cows in. And um, all right, it was either a, a terrible joke that nobody thought funny or you don't get it yet. So do I, do I give it more time or do I just keep going? Just keep going? Okay. I am going to need all of your attention this morning. It's going to take us a little while to get through this, so I'll stop with the dumb puns as best as I can help it. But uh, in this uh, understanding of the fact that we have, we have not just physically, you know, as a, as a people, probably put on a little bit of weight as we've gotten out of our rhythms and we've given into the stress and everything. What it does so often is reveals for us what we run to when we can't control the things in life. What are the places that we go in, in our stress times, but also in some of our um, exuberance or our pinnacles of, of joy even? What are the things that draw our attention? Those things uh, reveal some satisfactory or craving kinds of things in our life. And I think that the text that we're going through this morning is going to help us understand that a little bit better. Now, diet, whether it's good or bad. So we say your diet, whether it's full of cholesterol or it's no carbs, no sugar, all that kind of stuff. But diet tricks the body into craving more of the same. I'm going to go ahead and bag this microphone, um, Ron, and we're going to use just the, uh, all right, because we're cutting out. We were waiting for it this time. It happened by surprise on first service. So we've transitioned a lot smoother as a train wreck first service. See what blessings you guys have? We got the practice crowd, you know, now we really mean it, so. Diet tricks the body into craving more of the same. If if I am feeding off of things that I can more regularly get through a drive through line, even though intellectually it's telling me this isn't great for sustaining your life, there's something in my body that's adjusted to the taste, the chemical, the whatever that's saying, you need more of that. So when I'm driving down the road and I see that thing, it's kind of pulling me in there because that's what I've gotten used to living off of. Same way it goes the opposite. If I start eating better... Even though I think there's no way, I, I, kale still is out there. I don't know what you people are doing with kale. I don't get it. Never adjusted the taste. But I'm not really the best example because people have told me as you get rid of certain things in your diet, after a couple of weeks, you stop craving it. I still have never lost a taste for Ben and Jerry's no matter how healthy I am or the occasional French fry or anything like that. So I don't know what everyone's talking about, but the reality is, is you can adjust the things that your body expects and craves, right? We've experienced some of that. 
But the main thrust of our story is we're in John chapter 4, and we've been working our way, I know, slowly through the story of the woman at the well. Remember we said last week that this was the longest recorded dialogue that Jesus had with any other individual. So we're taking our time going through it because she reveals so much of the things that we struggle with, but now what we're going to see is she also represents so many of the victories that are available to us in the gospel. And the main thrust of this story with this woman is to reveal that Jesus is the only satisfaction to our cravings. Some of us believe this on an intellectual level or somewhat experientially, but for the most part, everything's going to just challenge me today. It's a good thing it's wired or I'd be hucking it to the back. Nobody's fault, by the way. We're all dealing with these challenges as they come. Where am I? Anybody remember? See how well you're paying attention. (laughs) Repeat back to me the last five minutes. Let's see how this goes. Metaphor, Metaphor, place to keep the cows. Wonk, wonk, wonk. Jesus is the only satisfaction to our cravings. All of our earthly pursuits, Jesus warned us last week in in chapter 4, in verses 13 and 14, he warned us. That everyone who drinks of this water, and we said that we could, we could put, fill in the blank, what's my water? What are the things that I crave? What are the places I run to for my, my satisfaction? Even the things I know are lying to me, and I'm going to wake up tomorrow regretting that I gave in to them. What are the places I move towards? What is my water that Jesus says all of these earthly pursuits... We'll leave you thirsty again, but, and this was the very hopeful word of the gospel, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. It runs contrary to our experience. Our lives have been full of a constant craving. We stuff up for a while. We feel good. We feel satisfied. It's all I needed. And if it's Chinese food, two minutes later, you're like, I'm ready for more. But but the reality is, is that so much of our experience in life really is kind of like that food that, that fills us up and we go, oh, I could never eat again. How many times have we said that, right? I'll never have to eat again. And then just a few hours later, like, how am I hungry already? Our experience is one of constant craving. But Jesus is, and this is the difference in Jesus, this is all that the gospel makes unique, is that he is sustained satisfaction. Again, if we're being honest, going by our experience, which is good, it's not based on our experience, but if we're just relating to this, how fulfilled do you always feel in Jesus? You might say, I don't know, I tried, I hit that reading program, I got two months in and I hit a wall, or I started going to church as often as I was, uh, you know, thought I should, or I started giving to the ministry, or I helped the little old lady across the street. I did the quote unquote religious things that I wanted to bring me fulfillment, and yet it doesn't always cut it. Is, is this based on our efforts or is this based on a provision of something else? And if we were paying attention over the last several weeks, right, we heard Jesus say, the water I give you never runs dry. It is a constant supply. <clears throat> so whether or not we continue to drink from that well doesn't make Jesus a liar. It just means whether or not we continue to go to it. And so what we're going to see here is uh, what we have been seeing, too, is a constant comparison between being empty or being full, what it represents in the physical world and what it's supposed to represent in the spiritual kingdom. 
So what I'm hoping, and I'm sorry, what I'm trusting that we're going to see in this passage is that you and I won't find real satisfaction until we start craving what counts for eternity. I, just like many of you, have earthly cravings. This isn't a complete denial of the fact that we crave things of this earth. And in a lot of ways, we were created to crave them. But the most satisfaction that I've found and many of you have found is when you start realizing that there is a kingdom, an eternal kingdom that never washes or wastes away. And we start giving our lives to that. We start investing or depositing into that kingdom. And that truth starts to ring home that that's where our satisfaction lies. And I think that's what we're going to see demonstrated by Jesus in just a bit. So let's get into our story before we get into kind of the meat of our text. And we're going to pick up. This is uh, I'm getting a a ring down here on this end. Um, In verse 27, just then his disciples came back. I love how this narration tells us that there's a lot going on at once. You know how sometimes you read your scriptures and um, it's, it's, it's a, uh, I'm sorry, I'm trying to maintain my concentration here. It's just really, really ringy down here. Low end, I think. The narration is telling us that instead of what we see so many times in scripture where a verse will say, um, you know, this happened and then this happened, we think it's happening instantly. Sometimes some time has taken place, but John is making it very clear that what's happening now is simultaneously happening and is something else. His disciples come back. Jesus is having this conversation with the woman at the well and his disciples come back and they marvel. The language here is that their jaws drop, that they, that they, they are astonished as though they had just witnessed some kind of massive miracle because their preconceptions or their prejudices also carry over with them. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, and we spent some weeks talking about some of those societal challenges and all the things that women would have had to deal with in that time and what men thought about him, in particular the religious leaders in the culture. But none of them, none of the disciples went up to the woman and said, what are you looking for? What do you seek? None of them went to Jesus and said, hey, why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. There's several things that I just want to camp on just to bring a little bit more life to this text if we could. A couple of them are speculations, but when I see what's going on here and the disciples are kind of hesitating to get to interrupt Jesus, they're, perhaps they're learning a little bit about, about the fact that Jesus doesn't uh, carry out the same MO as everybody else. And, and they were astonished. Their jaws did drop. So it's not like just because they decided to follow Jesus, they were chill with everything that Jesus was doing different from what their culture would dictate. They had their own things, their own hurdles to get over, but they perhaps had watched him enough where they were like, let's see where this goes. I'm not sure what he's doing here. They, they probably had some, some newbie respect for him that they weren't going to call him out. Hey, Jesus, we just don't do this kind of thing. The apprehension of the disciples, though, doesn't necessarily mean that they weren't engaged or they weren't interested. I I thought of um, the contrast to this. If you know your Old Testament a little bit, you know the story of Jonah, where God had called Jonah to, to go and to proclaim the good news of the Lord and the love that he had from the forgiveness that he was offering the Ninevites. Jonah said, I ain't going. 
You know, he got swallowed up by a whale and everything. But we would be tempted to think that he said no to going there because he was intimidated. He was afraid. Maybe it was a long journey. He didn't want to go through any of that sort of thing. But it really turns out that Jonah just didn't like those people. And he didn't want them to experience the forgiveness of God. He had such animosity for the Ninevites that he said, he actually says in, uh, in chapter 4, verse 2, he prays, this is in Jonah, he's praying more like whining to the Lord. And he says this, he says, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. If we took the last part of this verse and turned it into a worship song, every church around the world would be singing this. There's, there's praise dripping from what Jonah is saying. He says, you're a gracious God. You're merciful. You're slow to anger. I knew this is who you were, and I didn't want to introduce you to them because they don't deserve you, as though he does. Isn't it amazing that he can say these truths about God, these really big truths that we would love to hear somebody else acknowledge, and he's doing it out of rebellion. He's doing it out of anger towards the fact that God is that person. So we have to be clear sometimes that just intellectually assenting the truths about God does not make us a follower of Christ, does it? And so Jonah isn't the example, I don't think, that's going on here with the disciples. They're, they're still invested. They're still bought in. They went in and they mingled with the Samaritans. They went in and got food from them and all that sort of stuff. But there were still things they had to get over themselves. But they were patient enough to see where Jesus was going with this. Perhaps it would shape their cultural understanding and practice as well. Another observation from this short little paragraph that we just read is did you notice how she dropped her jar? The thing that she came with, the thing that she did every single day, and she had to strategically plan out the time of her day so she wouldn't be embarrassed or have to deal with all the glaring stares and all these kinds of things. She dropped the thing that she came to do. She just left it and took off. Now, I'm imagining here there could be a reason for this. There could be... You know, maybe she filled it, but then she forgot, right? Because the more obvious application would be she found what she was looking for. She thought she showed up there because her her household needed actual H2O. But she found something better, and we've experienced that. We've gone through that. We set out with a plan for the day, and somebody interrupts it or changes it. And then by the end of the day, we're like, I never knew I even needed that or I even wanted that. I didn't even know I was looking for that. She found that her true thirst could be quenched instead of this thing that she's been repeatedly doing every single day. Maybe she didn't even fill it. Maybe she was just so distracted by the good news that she never even got around to why she was there. Remember how I was saying before, it always kind of puzzled me, like, would John just tell us if Jesus got the drink or not? Have you got that OCD thing kind of hanging? Like, please tell me he got a drink at least. He said he was thirsty. Maybe she did fill it. Maybe she recognized that. Maybe she, she kind of is so appreciative of what Jesus just gave her. Maybe she left it for him. You need this more than I do right now. You just gave me an incredible gift. But you said you are thirsty. You have this. And that, that simple, perhaps, act of worship would just be, I'm going to give back to you that which you deserve because of all that you've given for me. I don't know. The text doesn't tell us that any of those things happen. It just says that something became more important to her, so she drops it and goes. And what does she say to them? 
come see somebody that told me all that I did. Did Jesus really tell her everything that she did? Well, last Tuesday you went to the market and then on Thursday you went and said this to your family member and then you would, no, he didn't. But he said all that she did that mattered to her. All the things that have been weighing her down, all the things that she couldn't find payment or release from, all the burden that she was carrying, and Jesus dealt with that, so she went and said, he just covered the most important, most most incredible aspects of everything that I care about. He told me all that I did. And then she asks very wisely, I think this woman has, has uh, learned a, th- a thing or two, especially in the culture she's in, instead of just coming out and saying, hey guys, I found the Messiah, You need to come see him now. They would have said, who are you, a woman, to tell us? So she kind of asks it in a more delicate way. It's almost like, I'm going to make it your idea kind of thing, that that tactic where she said, hey, I don't know, I'm just going out on a limb. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Christ? Whatever it was in her affect, whatever it was in her freedom, whatever it was in her passion, whatever it was in her polite demeanor and knowing who she was talking to and being respectful, whatever it was, they respond immediately. And the reason why we know that the whole point, the climax of this story is going towards uh, the complete satisfaction that we can find in Jesus is because of how he handles this whole thing going on. This is where we get into it. Verse 31, we're going to begin to see that the gospel feeds our true craving. And I know I'm being repetitively redundant over and over and over again. But the point is, is that you and I, we can forget this the moment we walk out of here and we can still see everything that glitzes, everything that kind of sells itself to us. And we can go, yeah, that's what I need. Because we're that fickle, we're that feeble, aren't we? But the gospel feeds our true craving. So meanwhile, in verse 31, the disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. It's what we went for. It's why we were gone so long. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Was there a Snickers in his pocket that we didn't see? What's going on here? Jesus says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What is he really saying? Is he saying, I will never eat again because of what just happened and, and I'm, I'm good now? I don't know. Of course, he's going to be hungry. We know that he'll want food. He'll want that kind of thing. But he's making a point as he always does. And he's making a point with, with what he means. He's saying that the physical appetites of our lives will only ever deliver temporary fulfillment. He already told us that if you drink of this water, you'll thirst again. He's pointing out to us that we think we know what we need, right? We want autonomy. Ever since the garden, we just want to answer to ourselves. We don't want a God who comes in and tells us, this is the way you need to be. This is where you need to go. This is what you can't touch. We don't want someone managing our lives like that. So we think we need freedom from it. Or we think we need the pleasure that sells itself to us over and over and over again. And a pleasure that, that meets our definition and in our way. Or, or we think we need self-sufficiency. We want to be able to put our heads down on our pillow and say, I earned that. I did that. I provided for me. These are the things that we think we need. But God and his patience has known all along. We can't pull it off. We don't know how to manage our lives that way. Ever since the garden, that was proven. So Jesus is saying, if you want to continue to chase physical appetites, you will only be fulfilled for just a smidge. Instead, eternal appetites will find permanent 
fulfillment. This isn't the only time that Jesus has used food as a metaphor or used it as a teaching example, something physically that you and I all look forward to, something that we all depend on, something that we all wrestle with in various ways. He's used that because it's something so prominent in our life. In Matthew 4, 4, I I shouldn't say that. Actually, it's in verse 1 as we get to verse 4. Tells us the story that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, guess what? He was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, as the tempter, who is Satan, always does, little bit of truth mixed with a twist in a question, says, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So at his hungriest point he's ever felt in his life, probably, he says, well, if you're the Son of God, you know, show me. Make these stones become bread. I can relate to that temptation a little bit. It's like, I'm, I'm just trying to eat salad and someone's like, let's go to the Longhorn. I'm like, no, because you know what they're going to do? They're going to put that bread and cinnamon butter right under my nose. And I'm going to sprinkle it on my salad. That's what I'm going to do. Satan is saying to him, you've got the ability, turn it into bread right here and now. So what does Jesus say? As he always responds with the phrase, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Take that long horn. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Moses from Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy is, is Moses' sermon, if you will, to the people of Israel who have been down a journey. They were in slavery in Egypt. God moved in tremendous and miraculous ways to relieve, relieve them of slavery, to send them towards their promised land to get them out of the uh, grasp of the Egyptians. And in their freedom, what do they do? They did what we do. As soon as they felt that first grumble of their stomach, or that first fear of, oh no, here they come, everything in them said, this God can't be trusted. And Moses, you're to blame. You tricked us. You led us into this wilderness, and you brought us here to die. Over and over and over again, the history of mankind is proven that our eyes and our appetites are so stuck in the physical that as soon as it seems as though God's letting us down, our faith goes out the window. So to give the text, the context, I, I should say, of what Jesus is saying, and why would he quote this here? Let's read some, we've got some lengthy passages of scripture to go through, but just read along with me, and uh, we'll try to make sense of this. In Deuteronomy 8, beginning in verse 1. Moses writes, the whole, now keep in mind, this is after 40 years of wilderness wandering. The whole commandment that I command to you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing to know what was in your heart. This isn't a test for God to know what was in their heart. It was for them to see what the following whether you would keep his commandments or not. And what was their answer? Nope, we can't. Verse three, and he humbled you and he let your hunger and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you didn't know. You've never experienced before, nor have your fathers experienced manna before. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Basically saying, you complain that you are hungry, I fed you and it still wasn't enough. You were not trusting in the word of the Lord. You were not trusting in the provision of promise, uh, the promise of provision from the hand of God. 
And, and this experience just proved it. You wanted it your way. You wanted it to satisfy your cravings. We jump down to verse 7. But the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. A land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates. A land of olive trees and honey. A land in which you'll eat bread without scarcity. Take that all. Uh, I was going to say Olive Garden. That works too. Their bread's amazing. In which you lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. I am going to provide for you. I'm going to send you to a land where it's all stocked. All the pantries are loaded. It's good to go. So now do you trust me? No. Maybe sometimes, maybe on good days, maybe on Monday morning when I've been convicted about it on Sunday, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be like, now I mean it. Now I'm serious. Now I'm going to trust him. But then as soon as grumble, 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 oh, I'm hungry. Aren't we going to get all that stuff yet? God says, you got to wait for it. You're not there yet. It's on the way. I'm going to provide for you in the moment. In the meantime, that's not good enough. You promised us more. Where is it? When's it coming? All of this was to point towards, yes, giving them a physical land, giving them a possession, giving them all those things. But it was to point to the fact that our hearts are fickle and frail. They are desperately wicked and in need of rescue. So God knew right from the beginning he would have to do something at a deeper level. Not just feed us from the outside, not just give us a land, but to do something else. So Ezekiel tells us in chapter 36 that he's going to sprinkle clean water on us. You shall be clean from all of your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. We visited this passage when we were talking about Jesus' miracle at the wedding. Remember he turned those water pots into wine. Verse 26, I will give you, here's the transformation, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the external didn't do it. You didn't earn it. You didn't come through. You weren't faithful. You weren't anything. You didn't recognize my provision. I will do the work within you. So then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. Here's our food imagery, our provision imagery again. Verse 30, I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. What does that say about your provider if you're hungry? For generations, men have just been like, I'm the provider. I'm going to make sure there's food on the table and all this kind of stuff, right? That was like always inherent in that kind of, you're going to be the man of your family. So what does it say about God if his people are starving? And he says, you will no longer suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. God cares about providing for us. He's going to do what is best for his glory and best for his people, even though we are faithless to receive it. This is what the gospel is. We've Define the gospel in the past, and I'm going to use a repetitive definition for us. It's the good news that the just and gracious creator of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful men and women, that, that we can't fix this ourselves, that we are hopeless in this, and he sent his son Jesus, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection. 
so that everyone who turns from their sin and themselves and trusts in Jesus as Savior and Lord will be reconciled to God or joined to him or, or brought back to him, redeemed in him to God forever. When Jesus says, I have food that you don't know about, that I'm all set. When he said in Matthew 4 that man doesn't live on bread alone, what he's trying to indicate to us is that God is the one who meets our deepest provision, our biggest needs. You and I know that we need to be forgiven. You and I know that whatever anybody else has cooled us and the things that we've done or we've sought restitution, there's something that follows us. You're like, I'm not perfect. I can't get this monkey off my back. And so we know that we need forgiveness. So God says, I will provide forgiveness through salvation. Just like this woman at the well, none of us trust a promise anymore. People can say to us to our face, I promise I'll be there. I promise I'll do that. And we go, yeah, I've heard that before. We are in desperate craving for somebody to be true to their promises. God says, that's me. The scripture even tells us that as we're in Christ, we are sealed by the spirit of what? Promise. Because it's his character that we can trust. It's his character that we can take to the bank. He has sealed us for that redemption and it's sealed and it's locked by his promise. We all want purpose. We want to know that what we're doing counts. We want to be given some direction to know that this is counting for something bigger. So God says, I'm holy, I'm unique, I'm set apart, I'm different from everything else, and I will give you a unique plan. I will give you the thing to do, the thing to to serve me in that is different from everything else you're seeing around you. That's where the purpose is found. We all want to belong somewhere. When we're singing this song about how he loves us, we might go, well, that seems a little self-indulgent, but really it's worship when we say, I belong, I didn't deserve it. I don't deserve to be adopted. I don't deserve to be let in, and yet I am anyway. How he loves us. Why would he love me so much? It should be mind-blowing to us, but it gives us that belonging because we've been adopted as sons and daughters. And we all want freedom. Adam and Eve wanted freedom. They, they thought they could find that freedom by being removed from the authority of God. But instead, we find that the best way to find freedom is through submission to his authority. Because he loves us, because he's good to us, if we surrender to his plan and do things his way, we find freedom in it. As we go forward in our text, too, we're going to see that only the gospel grows the true kingdom. We have two kingdoms to live for. All right, we're in the home stretch. I told you we're going to take a little bit more time. Everybody there? Do we need to stretch, shake, wiggle it off? You want me to change microphones again? Anything like that? All right. So Jesus says, as he's explaining to them, he's saying, I've, I've got food you guys don't know about. And they're like, when did he find the Snickers bar? In verse 35, it says, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? which is just a statement or just us understanding that you plant a seed and it takes a little while for it to yield. He says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Remember I said this narration is, it's overlapping. All this stuff is happening at once. And some that have speculated because they've been at this well, which is still in existence today, and they've seen the road that comes in that most likely the Samaritan woman and now her entourage, her posse, her following, are coming down this road as, as Jesus is saying, you're wanting to cook the steak and make the hoagies and all that sort of stuff. I'm saying, look, check out what's coming down the road. 
Let's not wait for this. This is, we don't need to wait four more months. What's happening right now is harvest. Look at them coming. Verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Jesus here is telling us that God's been building a kingdom, one that we haven't laid our eyes on yet because we're looking at only our physical kingdoms. And he says, the way that this operates is we don't have to wait forever for the harvest. The the prophets and the writings and everything for centuries have been coming, talking about the time that we're in right now. And you disciples, you guys that are here following me, you get to pick all of the fruit off the vine. Because it's ready now. You are entering into the thing that others have labored on. And even more specifically, you were in the market while I was sowing seed. And look, I'm going to have you be right here in the front row when they're coming saying, I'm ready to follow you. I'm ready for you to be my Lord and my Savior. And he says, I'm inviting you into the process and you get to basically just pick the fruit. And you know what? It's okay with the kingdom because everybody understands their part. Imagine how frustrating it would have been. I think we saw this when we were uh, studying in Peter, when, when Peter said that the prophets were writing things. They had no idea what the fulfillment was going to be. Imagine if you're really into the mission and you really want to see this pay off, and then all of a sudden you know you're on your deathbed, and you're like, I'm not going to see how this plays out. And Jesus is saying that some have sown seeds for a long, long time, and we get to reap the rewards, but it's all part of the same kingdom. Everybody's doing their part in the process. Earthly kingdoms always come to an end. We sometimes don't really think about the always part of that statement. We labor and we think about inheritance. We think about legacy. What's it all going to mean? What's my family going to look like after I'm out of the picture and I can't hold it all together? And we have a very inflated view of our own importance and all that kind of stuff. And we live for this kingdom that we don't think is always destined to pass away. We're locked in a physical world. We're locked in only what we can see. And we we are storing up treasures. We're putting in effort into a kingdom that is one that we can touch, one that we can see. Jesus warns against this in Luke 12. And he's telling a parable about somebody who's locked in that same mindset. And he says, this person in verse 19 will say to their soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you've prepared, whose are they going to be? They're not going with you. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is what Jesus is saying is that investing in his kingdom is making one rich toward God instead of empty in the physical world. This kingdom, this earthly kingdom has a constant fluctuation of qualifications. We don't know who we're making happy. We don't know who we're offending because they keep changing the rules on us. Right now, you're going to be successful in the kingdom. If you sound this way, you do this thing. And all of a sudden we go, okay, now I can figure that out. And I start playing by those rules. And then somebody else comes and changes them on us. There's no certainty there. No guarantee of success. So the warning is to reduce our appetite toward the earthly kingdom, to to start going on a me kingdom diet to where I'm thinking, I don't need to keep building this. I don't need to keep crunching down on all that kind of diet because it's not doing me any good. 
So I'm going to throw out, I'm, I've invented a new workout challenge. You ready for this? And, and all workout challenges have to be packaged. They have to have a guru. They have to have a calendar, a diet plan, all that sort of stuff. Mine's going to be really simple, $39.99 a month, and you can participate. I'm joking. Uh, we're going to call this the 923 challenge, okay? Because you have to have a number in there and it has to sound cool probably put an X in there, a 923X challenge or something like that. If you are stuck in an earth kingdom pursuit, you have to go on a me kingdom diet. Where does 923 come from? Luke 923. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would find their satisfaction in me is what Jesus is saying, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So there's our regimen. If we're going to find our satisfaction in Jesus, we have to shed off the pounds, the weight that we're carrying around of the accumulation of our temporary satisfactions in this earthly kingdom. So that's denying myself, getting that off, getting, getting rid of that, and then getting into the original CrossFit plan. Sorry, I had to pun that up. I, I'm, I'm certain that preachers years ago when CrossFit became a thing, they already made series off the... I just missed it. I'm just seeing it for the first time this week. We, the CrossFit plan, we take up his cross daily and follow him. What does the cross represent? The cross represents for us sacrifice. It represents torture and brutality and, and difficulty and the hardest thing you'd ever go through in your entire life. And yet we somehow think that Christianity is supposed to be a little bit more smooth sailing. But if we're going to truly get kingdom fit, if we're truly going to shed those earthly pounds of all the things that keep failing us, we have to go pretty extreme here. We have to make these Changes. David Platt says in his book, Counterculture, he says, repentance is a costly call to fundamentally say no to who you are in your sin in order to find an entirely new identity in who he is. That identity in the person of Jesus Christ is lived out in a heavenly kingdom that never ends. Theologians have called it the already and the not yet, that, that God has revealed his kingdom to us in part and in practice now, but the full realization of it doesn't happen until we see him face to face. It's a focus on the eternal. Now think about the practicality of this. I know we're going a little bit long here, so let me see if I can just get your attention for a few more minutes. The practicality of you and I living for a kingdom that never ends, that is beyond all this temporary decay that we experience. How would that allow you to easier go through the things that trip you up, the things that threaten to harm you, the things that confuse you and, and challenge you and those kinds of things? Because you're letting go of this life more so that the things that happen in this life don't have as big a toll. Now, they're going to still hurt. They're still going to freak us out. We're still going to need to lean on others in order to get through them and stuff. But the impact and the devastation is lessened because we're living for a different kingdom. We didn't expect it all to come now. And it has one unchanging qualification. Instead of trying to figure out who's happy with us and we play by the rules, it has one unchanging qualification, this kingdom, and it's faith. A belief in the Lord, one that you can't muster on your own, one that you don't rely on your own, but that he has gifted you with, and you exercise that faith towards him, which carries with it the promise of reward. No second guessing whether or not this is going to work or any of those things. 
you and I are only going to find big purpose in our life for living for a bigger kingdom than the pleasures of this world. I had a conversation many years ago with a guy I was part of a group and we were trying to figure out kind of like certain ways of bettering ourselves and all this kind of stuff. And I was, I, I was talking with a guy who had earned all the money he would ever need, really. He, he was a part of our group and he's already made millions of dollars and, and his business was one that was like just generating income and stuff. And he's like, I really don't even have to be there anymore and still a fairly young guy and everything. But he wasn't coming at it from a, I've already arrived. He was still pretty heavy. He was still pretty empty. He was still kind of looking for something. And so I just said, well, why are you motivated to be a part of something else? You seem to have arrived at, in my young 20s and stuff, all the pinnacle of what I would love to have for creature comforts and everything. Why, what, what's motivating you to do this? And he just says, I don't live for anything bigger than me anymore. I, every decision that my company needs to make doesn't go any higher than me all the reliance of the income or even figuring out how to spend all this stuff. It's all up to my best ideas and whether or not I can invest properly and who I'm setting up for. And he goes, I don't belong to anything that is bigger or outside of my control that I can see. He was confessing an emptiness, a longingness that even though he had attained all the things that he could wish for, he needed to figure out how do I become part of something I can answer to? This life of being the king of my own castle isn't satisfying me anymore. Back to our woman for just a moment. Imagine the Samaritan woman's exhilaration when she has been given this bigger purpose in her life, bigger than her own failures, bigger than all the letdowns that have happened to her. And Jesus said to her that God is, is searching about looking for someone like you, who's humble in heart, who is, who is broken before the Lord. He's seeking those of you like that to worship him. So you can see what gives her a spring in the step. You can see what makes her drop the water jug because now she's just been given this purpose. She's, she, she can echo the very voice of God. She can actually indicate that the Messiah has arrived. Imagine her exhilaration. She's living out what Paul would later say in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Once it's Christ living in us, that's when purpose comes flooding in. I, I just want to say this for a moment to some people that I know can't be here. Some people that we've been praying for and reaching out to, and there's people that are getting cancer diagnoses. There's people that are getting COVID. There are people that just can't be here, and they've been dealing with some of these things even before um, the world was aware of a virus and all this kind of stuff. There is a, a feeling of uselessness that we all go through. We feel put on the shelf at various points of our life, and I know that there are many who are feeling that now because you can't do or be who you used to be. You can't do the things that you used to do. And we have this tendency to think because my, my ability in the earthly kingdom that I've experienced and built and participated in no longer cares about my qualifications. I must be washed up or useless. Is that what we're seeing from this woman? She had erased her qualifications a long time ago. Society had erased her qualifications way before she was born. And it wasn't because she mustered up. It wasn't because she dug in and, and found the guts to, to do it. She simply surrendered and let it go. And there are so many people that are just feeling like, what impact can I make? 
day to day, I don't know if I'm scared. I don't know if I'm hopeful. I don't know if I'm, if I'm feeling pain or if I'm relieved from that pain or whether or not I really believe that there's a heaven waiting for me or some days that's all I can think about is that I get to be with Jesus face to face and our, our faith is fickle. It goes up and down. We're kind of like those, those people that were released from, from slavery and we're like, yay, God came through. Oh, I'm hungry. I want to quit. This is who we are. The power of the gospel isn't in you and I stepping up, going harder, doing it better. It's in surrendering it to Jesus Christ and that he takes over and his glory shines through you. And trust me, whether you're in a hospital bed, whether you're held up, whether any of those things are going on, Jesus will shine brighter in you when you give that to him. That's the way it works. Less of me, more of him. In some ways, and I say this really trying to be as respectful as I can because I know the suffering that some have gone through. But in some ways, you're a step ahead of where those of us that may not be in that straight, in, in those straits are when it comes to being able to proclaim with a megaphone all the glories of Jesus Christ. When you speak, people listen to you differently because it's in the midst of your suffering. When I speak and everything's going good in the moment, people are like, that's what you're supposed to say. It changes when we give our lives to the Lord and let him do with it what he will. The questions for us is, are we stuck in a cycle of earthly cravings? Have we let the lies uh, that have come to our soul and, and start to permeate in our life that, that have added to our spiritual waistline to continue our metaphor? Have we let those lies come in and lead us astray? Of course we have. So the question then for us is, when will we let the Holy Spirit interrupt this destructive pattern? When will we step out in faith and say, maybe my cravings could change? I can't see it now, but they tell me if I start today and then do it again tomorrow and that kind of thing, that maybe over time I won't crave the same things that have lied to me or destroyed me. Maybe you're beginning to see how Jesus satisfies our deepest thirsts and cravings. Maybe we're starting to recognize that the desire that we want in life that fuels us can only be found in him. The purpose in a mission can be found in him and belonging to a family is what is provided by him. Are we trusting him for this fulfillment? If you answer yes to any of those things, the question then is, what's your next step? What are you going to do? What's the next thing, the next level of self-denial or self-availability to the plan of the Lord that he's asking you to offer up? When are you going to say, Lord, anything, just make it clear to me and I will do it. That's what true kingdom building is. That's what finding real satisfaction to the cravings in our life. That's where it comes from. Let's stand, if you will. I appreciate your attention so much this morning. I ask the worship team to come and we're just going to thank the Lord for all that he's doing, all that he's going to continue to do. God, we just come before you really amazed, Lord, at how you have made the scriptures who were written so long ago still mean something to us. Lord, I personally just thank you for the challenge that drips off these pages every time you've given me the blessing of opening them up and studying them. And Lord, I know that your people feel the same way. I thank you, Lord, for gifting faith in so many of the churches around town and in our region, in our state, country, and even in the world, Lord, a group of people that are still calling on you and lifting their praises up to you, Lord, and trusting in you to be our real provision, to expose the lies that, of our, that our hearts have believed. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the grace and the faith 
to leave them behind. May we find our provision, our satisfaction in you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.